Hi, I'm Sahel, and this is the Qualitative Open Mic Podcast. It's from the Qualitative Applied Health Research Center, mercifully shortened to Quark. Qualitative research always brings up a lot of questions for researchers. How many people should I talk to? How should I interpret what they say? Do themes emerge or are they actively created? This podcast and this podcast series aims to answer those qualitative conundrums. Today, we have a brilliant guest with us who's going to introduce themselves. Ollie, would you like to go for it? Hi, my name is Ollie Williams. I'm a sociologist who works at King's College London, and I'm currently being funded by the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute to research co-production, and particularly co-production in applied health research. Great. Thanks, Ollie. And could you just tell us a bit about what co-production is and where it might come from? Oh, well, yeah, sure. It's a big question to start with, I suppose, but an important one. Um, I suppose the answer is that it really depends on what field you're coming from and also the context in which you're using it. So if you're saying, oh, I'm co-producing this or this is being co-produced, it will mean different things in different fields and in different contexts. So the term co-production has been used by many different people to describe different things, really. Um, and what you're seeing now is the terms become more popular and I suppose there's a there's a contested nature of what it should mean um, and so you see often you see people um, arguing over what it does mean and what it should be and so I think there's a lot of work being done of how to unpick that I'm doing some of that work um, so I, re I recently wrote a paper with um, Brett Smith, Lydia Bone and Moving Social Work Co-Production Collective and in that, one of the things we tried to do was separate out some of the ways it has been used, it, like just historically um, and in different disciplines. And so we came up with three kind of types um, of usage of the term co-production. Now, we're, we're not saying this is exhaustive. There, there definitely will be more. Um, like I, can, I can even think of a fourth myself. But what we're trying to do is think of it like as as a useful in, in the context of research when people are using it how how is it being used as a sort of like a, like a like a process so the first one uh we we've defined it as in citizens contributions to public services so this comes from the work that is often considered to be like the original academic work on co-production and where the term came from in that sense and that's uh was led by eleanor ostrom in the sort of 1970s and it, it stems from a project in particular where she was looking at or it, it researching police um, services in Chicago. And really interestingly, so this is th this is where you get an understanding of co-production as what I would say, like as, as an, a phenomenon and to some extent inevitable. So she was looking at the efficiency of different services, public services, and in this case, police. And her findings might not seem particularly startling now, but were actually pretty groundbreaking at the time, which was that the effectiveness of a service is to some extent determined by those people who rely on or use that service. So, for, for example, with policing, right? So the effectiveness of one neighbourhood's police service compared to another service's uh, neighbourhood's police service is to some extent reliant on the people who live in those neighbourhoods and what they're doing. So, for instance, if you live in a neighbourhood where it's really normal 
at for people to have security systems or be able to afford security systems or that there's a culture of people locking their doors at night or during the day um or if you live in a place where when the police talk to people they're willing to talk to the police you know so if they're investigating a crime are people willing to tell people about what they saw so what i'm getting at is that the this sort of first sort of type of co-production that um we've identified in our work is this this what we've called citizens contributions to public services it's much more about recognizing that services aren't just one way or the effectiveness of a service isn't just impacted what by one way which is the service provider what the service provider does it's very much two-way it's recognizing that what people do like in terms of um the public and service users how they act what they do and the contributions that they're facilitated to make by systems and structures that has a big impact on the effectiveness of say a service right and then you've also got other things like um it was written about quite a lot during the pandemic that a lot of the response to the uh, pandemic was co-produced so a really obvious example of that is homeschooling for instance you had parents trying to teach their kids stuff that their teachers at school would normally be teaching the kids and that that is a public health um issue as in they're keeping their kids home that's allowing that or trying to uh, limit the spread of that infection so it's not just it doesn't just have to be a really obvious instance of care like like as i said with diabetes but something like homeschooling or bringing meals to neighbors those sorts of things so i would say that that so that is often what's considered like a the um original academic work on co-production the other two types that we write about in um in the paper is you've got integrated knowledge translation which is often referred to as ikt i think the origins of this is a sort of canada has certainly been very um well used in canada and it's, it's also pretty popular in the, in the uk um and i think the whole point of ikt my understanding of it was to, that there was a recognition that there was a a big gap between practice and academia and so often like a lot of evidence or research wasn't being used in practice and you know if you've got this gap what's the point in having really good evidence on healthcare um, services and those healthcare services not being able to use that evidence or not being aware of that evidence um so i think ikt is a lot more about trying to bring together groups of people to collaborate on things so you know if you if you work with people from the beginning the to generate evidence or knowledge about a particular thing then they're much more likely to in the end be able to implement that thing so it's a sort of a recognition that researchers have actually relatively little power in getting their research findings used in practice so you have to acknowledge that if you want to do that you need to work with people from the beginning who do you need to talk to like if you're doing if you're working in public health for instance you would need to work with healthcare professionals you would need to work uh with service providers you would need to work with commissioners you would need to probably work with um if it's in a particular area local councillors local people all of those sorts of things so that's why I would, I would say that that's sort of a separate category to the third category which we've defined in our paper which is what we call equitable and experientially informed research so i would say this is 
I mean, the fact that you've in, um, you've invited me onto this podcast, I think it's this type of stuff which is you're probably more interested in, in doing. How do you co-produce research? What does co-produce research look like? Um, so this equitable and experientially informed research kind of comes from, I think, the the mandate to do patient and public involvement in certainly in health and social care, right? So that's both in health health and social care policy making. Um, service provision, but also in the research. So research policy and practice, essentially. So that was, you know, I think roughly about 20 years ago, the the legislation came in that said, if you're designing a health service uh, or health policy, you have to involve people who are sort of end users or who are impacted by that, that thing that you're creating. Um, and then what that did is it created a need to have a mechanism to involve those people and in the way that the health research responded to that was with what's known as ppi so patient and public involvement and i think it's fair to say that and initially at least the way that ppi was set up definitely left open the possibility for a lot of tokenism box ticking not very good practice so even though people were being involved there was lots of ways that they were being involved but having no real influence um so you know we, we've all heard of like classic cases where patients are brought in to talk about a particular issue but then they're invited into a boardroom to sit on a meeting and they don't feel co comfortable in contributing to that if if they do feel comfortable contributing to that then you've got issues around are they listened to when they say things is that taken on board like does that actually have an influence on what ends up happening so it became, I think, quite easy for people to say that they had done patient and public involvement, but that patient and public involvement not having changed sort of the, the established hierarchy of experts like researchers and uh, healthcare professionals making decisions um, on their own, essentially. So co-production at that point in time, I think, came around as, uh, I think, as almost seen as a tonic. Uh, or sort of a way of out of that tokenism so you see it particularly with the nihr at that time they seem to latch on to this word co-production as okay ppi it's very easy to do ppi badly we need something that is beyond ppi almost like ppi plus right that would not allow you to have that tokenism would not allow you just to have this as a simple box ticking thing and they seem to have come to the term co-production um and there's some value in that, but there's also some issues with that because I think um, to some people, they were coming to that term knowing how it's been used in other fields and what it means in other fields. And some people, I think, are coming to it just as a kind of a more literal term. Like if you think co-producing, it just means working together to create something, essentially. Um, like I, I, it always makes me laugh. Like it's a very literal term. So for instance, if you if you watch a film, and you at the end credits you almost always now you have co-producer whatever because it's just a, it's a it's a very literal way of describing doing like producing something in a collaborative way so it doesn't it's very easy to use that term without sort of a knowledge of how it's been used before what that might mean um so i think the use of co-production as sort of a, a response to poor practice in ppi is kind of now sort of the dominant uh way researchers in particular are understanding what what co-production is i think and i think that's 
when you talk to a lot of um, people in this field, like I have, like a lot of the time when you ask them about how do you know about co-production or how wh what are the guidelines that you use for co-production, they're talking about, about the NIHR guidelines, in particular NIHR involved when that organization existed, that the, the, the guidelines they put, put out about what co-production is. And there's a real emphasis in that form of co-production that, that people who are, have expertise and experience that is derived from, say, their experience of an illness or living in a particular place or those sorts of things. So it's not necessarily like a professional experience. It's, it's based on um, their experience of what, what's often referred to as lived experience. Um, that those people should be involved throughout a research process. So right at the beginning, when you're coming up with research, uh, generating research ideas, and then through the application process, and then through the uh, project design process, and then through the data collection process and the data analysis, and then the writing up, and then the trying to get that research into practice. So they should be involved. There's a real emphasis in the NIHR model on sort of involvement at every level, I think, is, is how they would frame that. Great, thank you. That was that was really really insightful and uh, incredibly thorough. I think definitely that difficulty with the literal term co-production could throw a lot of people off, and it's really important to understand all the different forms and versions of co-production and what that means theoretically. I kind of wanted to pick up on something you said about the NIHR taking a active interest. So that's the National Institute of Health and Care Research. And is their involvement, so they're a big funder, did that mean that there's now a lot of funding resources for co-production, that it's something that a lot of people have the time and money to do? How does the money side of this work? Because from what you've told me about co-production, it sounds like it might be more time intensive uh, than perhaps other quote unquote stand more standard forms of research. Yeah, so I think I mean historically, patient and public involvement hasn't been well funded. I think it's always been an underfunded thing. It's always, I think, part of the reason why it's seen as a can be seen as a tick box for people, <clears throat> and why it's often um, underutilized, uh, underdone in research is because it was seen as an additional thing to do with no extra money or time to do it. So almost the, the research process stayed the same, but now you have to do this extra thing. Um, and you already didn't have enough money to do that. Um, so I think it then becomes a headache for some research who particularly researchers who are working before it was an expectation that you were doing this well now i have to do this with with um this more stuff with less money essentially um and the same amount of time often um that's not to say that that's always the case though like as in there's huge arguments now that if you properly costed ppi and if you properly planned it into your research it would get funded um i think people are always worried to do that because in a competitive research environment, so everyone's putting in bids to the same funding, people would be lying if they're saying that they're not trying to make their bid seem like it's one of the best economical things. So um, you can get a thing where I think researchers are trying to undercut each other. They're not 
you, you're, you're thinking, what is the funder going to consider a legitimate expense? And how much would they be willing to spend on this issue, maybe? And so you're, there's lots of second guessing going there. And I think that can create a bit of a race to the bottom where people start cutting out things or minimizing the importance of things to try and make theirs a competitive financial offer to the to the funder. Like, for instance, I think research would look very different if there was a guaranteed amount of money that you could access and then you could plan your research in a, in response to that guaranteed amount rather than knowing that there's, say, 2 million that might get 100 people applying to try and get that 2 million, then, then it becomes different. I think one of the other things I should emphasize, although I've said it about it's the NHR who are pushing this, it, it was people from the grassroots who were really central to making that happen. Like the NHR didn't necessarily do that out of the goodness of their heart, but all because they recognized that it was an important issue. It's because people were um, unhappy um, about the level of involvement that they had received or were receiving or the potential for them to be um, involved in certain things. And they said it wasn't good enough and that they were really pushing for something else. Um, so I think that's really key. I, I, I don't want to make out that this was institutionally driven, like it, as is often the case, it was voices from the outside often um, that were pushing for something better than what PPI was. And to, to a large extent still is. I think it's very easy still to do PPI, which is very minimal. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think that's the case. Yes, and to touch on your um, your question or to engage with your question more genuinely in in the sense from the co production, I, th I think what you're trying to get out there is that there already wasn't really a huge budget for PPI. Co production is seen as a sort of um, a more holistic version, I suppose, of PPI in, in many people's eyes. Um, so that's not going to be cheaper than <laughs> what what was happening before. So yeah, I think there there is an issue there that often uh, people who are trying to do PPI are facing sort of financial struggles, I suppose, um, trying to make things happen with not a lot of money. Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And um, I just also wanted to think about, you mentioned that, okay, so this wasn't an institutional change. This was something that, um, you know, grassroots organizations and, and, and perhaps even individuals demanded. People were unhappy perhaps um, with researchers or with um, service design and were trying to push for something else. I want to ask, did people, do you think we've reached that something else? Is that something else specifically when we're thinking about a research context that, might that something else not be research? Do you see what I'm saying? As in, researchers have now responded and they're using PPI holistic methods, but actually what people wanted was not research and maybe campaigning or advocacy or other sorts of policy change. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's two things there. Like, have we, I think your first part of that question was, have they essentially is there is there something new now something different is there ppi plus if you want if you wanted to call that largely i think not necessarily um but i also think what is the ask then i don't think the ask was ever that everything should be co-produced um there's i think you ended up with a ridiculous situation where 
co-production kind of became seen as a gold standard, even though it means a very specific thing or can mean a very specific thing. So I think it's perfectly fine to say that co-production was not the best approach in all situations and people need to sort of recognize that. Um, But the issue should be that if if there is a situation where co-production is really appropriate, it should be being done properly. Um, And I don't think that that is always the case or always facilitated. And the second part of that question, in terms of is it research that people want? Is it co-produced research that people want or is it something different? I mean, from my own personal experience in in the sense of researching, so like before, I I haven't always researched co-production before this. My um, work was in health inequalities and the reason I came to sort of what I would call participatory methods or an interest in participatory methods is because what I saw in local health um, policy implementation, basically health interventions trying to reduce inequalities, almost always they were failing. Um, And what I mean by that is failing to significantly reduce inequalities in health. Um, And sometimes they were exacerbating those inequalities. And one of the main reasons why that was happening is because the solution to reducing health inequalities was being designed by people at a sort of a central level who were not local people who didn't know what that local area wanted. And then so the interventions that were designed were kind of being put on these people and they, they didn't necessarily ask for these things. They didn't want those things. They're not, they're not solving issues in their lives that they actually had an issue with, you know? And so that always just seemed absolutely bizarre to me. My biggest frustration in life generally, but also in research particularly is when people's good intentions don't end in like a useful outcome, because it's so difficult actually to get people to have the intention to address inequality. Um, And if they have a genuine desire to do that, my real frustration is when that real genuine desire or intention to do that, then because of a poor strategy ends up not doing that. And I think participatory methods for me were a way that you could kind you could attempt to do that better you know so you're not creating interventions that are not important to that are addressing issues that are not important to that local um community or local people or patients at a particular service or whatever um but yeah i, I think more generally a lot a lot of the time the stuff that co the stuff that people who are co-producing research are trying to do often the people that they're engaging with, it's not necessarily that they want more research on a thing. They want a thing to change. Um, and I think there's, there is a real difficulty with um, researchers trying to do something which has to be research orientated because their funding has come from a research body. But the it's not actually necessarily important to the local people that, that you write a paper on this or that you generate more grant income or um or that you find out new things often the community know or think that they know what the problem is you know and and that often these things can be quite simple and research is confirming that And and i'm not saying that that's not a useful thing like research is often confirming things that people talk about so People say this thing's happening, but we don't necessarily have the data or evidence to demonstrate that that's definitely the case. 
and then research goes in and goes no nah, no nah, that is happening or either actually it's not happening um but that's not necessarily what they want so for instance in an area that i worked they were they closed the local school that was really unpopular the school they the people in that area didn't want that school to be closed down now if researchers got involved in that the local people don't necessarily want just a paper that demonstrates how strongly people felt that the school shouldn't be shut down they wanted their school not to be shut down and research i think can potentially help that to happen as in to you can maybe use evidence in a way that helps to illustrate that it's important to keep this school open um but even if that is the case that's probably going to happen over a timeline that means the school's going to be shut long before that data is it or evidence is 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 there um so i agree with you i do think that a lot of the time um people don't necessarily want more research they want action and impact on stuff but then i don't want to undersell research i i am a big advocate i think that research particularly research in in that's been funded by um bodies that are responsible for health and social care like you should be trying to make sure that your research is impactful that it has some sort of impact like i'm not i'm not someone who thinks all research has to be driven by impact like i'm absolutely fine for people to research for hidden meanings in tolkien's work do you know what i mean I, I that's fine that but that is also quite different from if you're getting funding from the nihr you should i think be thinking about what's the sharp end of what you're trying to do and i don't think it i don't think that you can get away with just saying well we published a few papers and gave a few conference presentations great thank you yeah i've been doing a lot of uh research around lord of the rings with the new series out so um <laughs> i'm definitely one of those um i wanted to know you talk about i want to think about the researcher's role in co-production or not even the researcher maybe the, the design service designer's role why does it have to be facilitated why does it have to be a conscious thing if um at the beginning when you talked about the first two understandings of co-production it seems kind of inevitable well yeah, i think yeah so kind of one of the reasons why i describe those differences is that we shouldn't those things shouldn't bleed into each other so for instance the idea that things are inevitably co-produced right is detrimental to the idea of trying to ensure that things are designed more equitably or can be detrimental they shouldn't be for me they they perfectly influence each other so if you know that a service the effectiveness of a service is to a large extent determined by the involvement of and contributions of the people using that service it would make a lot of sense to involve them in the design and potentially the delivery and the evaluation of those services so that that should those two things should go hand in hand what often happens i think is that because co-production is a bit of a buzzword that people want to use because they know that funders are keen on funding co-produced research or at least say that they are there's certainly calls for co-produced research um although more broadly i'm not sure that it is particularly um friend a friendly funding environment for co-produced research um yeah i think that people can almost nominally change their design or their research process because they're going oh well, this was co-produced and because it's it is true 
if you take the sort of inevitable thing. But my thing is that, well, if it's inevitably co-produced, that you can't use that as your language to justify what you're doing. That, that's something else. Like you need to think about the other tradition. So what we're referring to is equitable and experientially informed research. Like there's different expectations. That's a different context um, that you're expected to to respond to. In the first instance, you know, researchers aren't necessarily involved in that. You know, although you could say that Ostrom helped to reveal it in some way in the 70s. Um, does it need to be facilitated by researchers or professionals? Um, it doesn't in the sense that I think a lot of this stuff happens definitely outside of academia and we're, so and, and is not on the radar of academics um, necessarily. And the fact that researchers or academics aren't involved in that is not necessarily a problem, although you might want to involve some of them. It might make sense for some researchers to get involved in some stuff. And I really want to make the point that a lot of this stuff is happening and it's not, people wouldn't call it co-production, as in what they're doing is absolutely what we might consider to be a really good standard of co-production in terms of grassroots up, like collaborative, equitable, um, addressing issues which have been marginalised, working together all the way through to see it, to try and generate some sort of outcome which has a meaningful difference to people's lives. But they might not call that co-production, and I have absolutely no issue with that. Um, on a more practical issue, particularly with things around co-design or just participatory methods, um, good facilitation does help. Um, if you've ever done like group working, you know how 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 do you manage things which are to some extent not always predictable beforehand, but you know that some people. Um, are very willing to contribute and talk all the time and other people might have really useful things to say but are shyer or don't or don't feel comfortable contributing um how do you um negotiate the time in which you're spending on particular elements of a project like how long is it to talk about what the how long do you need to talk about what the issues are how long do you need to then talk about what you might do about that how long do you need to then try and take those and to come up with sort of potential ideas for solutions to those in my experience having good facilitation really really helps that um often facilitation doesn't happen because people don't have money for it or it, it, it does happen but it's it happens it's been done by people who aren't necessarily um don't have, aren't blessed with facilitation skills <laughs> necessarily um but there's really, really good stuff as well. And and yeah, I think facilitation does help. It doesn't have to be an academic or a researcher that's doing it. It's probably useful that it isn't them. Um, but there's not always the resource to to make that happen. But yeah, I agree I agree with you. It doesn't um I think the idea that co-production is a thing that academics do or it's a thing that comes that's emanated from academia or research is not necessarily a useful starting point. Brilliant. Thanks. That's really, really helpful. So we're coming to the end of our time. I just wanted to ask, what advice would you give someone who wants to do sort of meaningful PPI, let's call it, or co-production um, in their research, but doesn't really know where to start? Maybe they're a student and they're really interested in these methods. Are there 
resources they can go to? Do you have some general advice? Should they maybe steer clear of it or does it depend on their context? So for my, my advice, the, the longer I've been involved in um, working on participatory research is I I've sort of feel it doesn't make sense to have sort of an allegiance to any particular type of participatory method. What you really have to do is think about matching a method to uh, a particular situation. And that might, and, and also recognizing that that might not be exactly what you want to do, but you have to be realistic about the situation that you're in. So the, the, the resources that you have, the time that you have with time being a resource, um, but also, like, it's not always entirely necessary to go start with a blank slate, which is often what co-production is doing. Is you so, for instance, co-production would be say uh, you go into a local community, and the idea is that you want to improve health in that local community. Instead of going in there with a whole bunch of ideas, you go in there and you talk to people and you find out what's important to their lives, and then you start to build stuff from the ground up like that. Um, you don't always have to do that. Like for instance, there might be a whole host of evidence that's already available. That means that you know that there are some important issues here. So I, the one I always use, um, the example I always use is stuff like um, asthma and uh, traffic congestion. So they know that there's a link between traffic congestion and rates of asthma of children. So exposure of children to um, traffic. So if you wanted to take that right back and be like, okay, we're going to do a project around asthma and, and children, you could end up with a situation where because people are unaware of um, that evidence that you start by doing things of saying, well, oh, actually we really struggle to get our child to use their inhaler and what, what would help them to use their inhaler if, was if inhalers were cooler, you know, like if you could design your own inhaler that was more, attuned to you now th that is useful and that would be a good thing but it won't necessarily stop huge congestion around a school which is actually the thing that's causing more people to have asthma rather than their use of an inhaler afterwards now both of those things are important but what i'm saying is you don't necessarily need to co-produce um a thing to find out what the issue is you can start further along down the line and then you might use a different participatory method something like co-design or co-creation to then act on that issue um, but some people would say you're not co-producing that then because you've already kind of decided what you wanted to do beforehand. But I don't necessarily think that's always an issue. So my big, the big bit of advice I'd have is don't hold up co-production as, uh, as a gold standard. Be aware that um, lots of different participatory methods exist and are useful in different contexts and can have a real impact be um sort of genuinely useful in different contexts um always match um resource and ambition so if you've only got five grand don't think that you can change the world with that five grand um be really realistic and one of the reasons i say that is because i think often people lose sight of actually getting things done or the end point often if people are willing to engage with you and, and be partners or collaborators with you in a project they're not doing that just because they want to talk to you about the thing that they might be struggling with or the thing that's important to them they're also doing that because 
they want to see something happen, see some action as a consequence of that. And I think often if you're working with a really small budget, you can get really caught up in the listening and then that listening not going anywhere. And that can be a really big problem when, you know, it's really common in academia that people are precariously employed. And so you go from one project to the next. So if you just listen to a load of people, you spent lots of time, you've taken a lot of their time to listen to their, their issues, and then you move on to another project and nothing happens with that, that has a really detrimental impact on, say, people's trust with researchers or their willingness to engage with researchers in the future, all of those things. So match our, our resource and ambition. But equally on that, that should be done when you're applying for funding as well. If your ambition is to really genuinely co-produce stuff and do things well, then apply for an amount of funding that would allow you to do that. So it works both ways. If you've got the funding, match it that way. If you haven't got the funding, match it the other way. Um, but yeah, really don't lose sight of getting things done. It, it, it's nice to listen to people, of course it is, and it's important to listen to people, but it's also, it's necessary but insufficient. You know, like we we shouldn't lose sight of actually wanting to help the, the things that people tell us and the things that when we're working together and people are proposing and we're all engaging in this together and um, coming up with ideas, if we've got no means or way of using that information to then do something with it, then that is a failure of the research process. So don't lose sight of it. Um, match um, um, resource and ambition and don't get caught up in the idea that co-production is a gold standard partly because that can that can lead to two really silly things doing so you either do something that isn't co-production and end up calling it co-production just because it's a better way of framing your work because you, you think it looks better to a funder or a publisher or whatever um, or it can lead you to using a method that actually isn't appropriate for the particular context that you're in and then that being a problem because you run out of money before you can do anything useful or you ignore a whole bunch of evidence that you could have drawn on otherwise or th those sorts of things so i think they're key i think all of those things but mainly i think just to recognize that participatory approaches are really valuable and, to, and although currently, structurally within universities, it's, it's quite difficult, I think, to get funding and time and resource and support to do that work, um, there's a reason for doing it. Like, and it is, to, it, it is because those participatory methods can be more effective, but they can all, ethically, there's also a reason to do that. And those two things aren't separate either. The, the ethical reason is also, uh, can also make things more uh, effective. So, for instance, in my work with health inequalities, often health inequalities are because people are being marginalised and ignored and um, disadvantaged in various ways. And participatory methods are a way of attempting to address that um, and allowing you to get to insights and allowing you to generate um, relationships and allowing you to generate information and knowledge that can be used to address the things like health inequalities and without that and without going through that process you won't be able to do those things great thank you so much um are there a few resources you can throw at us one of the things i found really useful for particularly with people working in applied health research is um 
what was called Clark West and is now called Arc West. So I think it's collab- Collaborations for Leadership and Applied Health Research and Care West, which stands for West of England, or now, which I think they're Applied Research Collaborations uh, West, again, West of England. Um, so they were organisations set up by the NHR a good few years ago now um, that were attempting to address the gap between research and practice, essentially. Um, and they do really good work. And there's there's one in each area of, of England. And there's really brilliant people in the uh, in the West working on this. And in particular, I think Michelle Farr's work is really exceptional in this area. Um, and Michelle led um, a project where the, the outcome of that project was a map of resources for co-producing research in health and social care. So it's a document which is free to download from their website and there's loads of stuff in there. There's stuff around definitions, there's stuff around different uh, resources that are available that might help you to do this stuff. I think it's really, really invaluable and it's really brilliant that they've done that work. During the pandemic, quite a few of us wrote a book um, or edited a book called COVID-19 and Co-Production in Health and Social Care Research Policy and Practice. So there's volumes one and two of that. Volume one is kind of like the why co-production would be a good idea to do, why it would be useful to co-produce things, and particularly in light of the pandemic. So it's kind of the theory behind why why you would justify doing it. And volume two is how people have done it. So there's lots of examples of how people have co-produced research or attempted to work in a more participatory way, even if they don't call it co-production. I think often with co-production, learning from whatever people have done, like examples like that are are the most useful. You can read kind of the theory of it, but until you see how people have done that in practice, it's it's difficult to take into account. Um, But I, I also think to get a better understanding of the challenges that are involved this like this stuff is not necessarily really easy to do or simple to do um and you can learn from the challenges and you can also reflect on how would you respond to that do you think that that the group that you're learning from or the the example that you're learning from do you think that they did it in the best way or do you think that they could have done it differently like it's really useful to think about in in all co-production projects as in most projects actually which even if they're not co-produced it's likely that you experience challenges that there are a multitude of different ways that you can respond to. And you can't always guarantee that you're going to respond to it in the best way. You respond in the way that you think is most useful in that moment, potentially. And then it's only retrospectively that you realize whether that was a good decision or not. And I think that that's the value of case studies often is that you can look at it retrospectively and sort of have that um, way to evaluate it and think about it in those ways. And then that should, if you do that often enough, it should help you when you're in those situations to make better decisions, I think. Thank you so much. That's that's excellent advice. And a lot of things I think hopefully our listeners can draw on and re-listen to when they're thinking about their work. I just want to say thank you so much, Ollie. This has been really, really excellent. And yeah we really enjoyed having you on thanks for inviting me i think this is going to be our last episode in the series qualitative conundrum so a lovely lovely way to finish off next series is going to be on how qualitative research can support anti-racism so please do join us for that thank you so much ollie and goodbye <laughs>